welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. And welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis. And welcome to part B of our discussion with Simon Hawken, where he interviews us on the H Hour with Hawks podcast. If you haven't listened to episode A, go back and take a listen. And for those that have already listened to that episode, let's turn our attention to part B. Let's get on with the show. You're in the regiment, um, and obviously you went over there first, Tim. How was that for you coming out of a battalion as a young lieutenant and hmm. then doing selection and now walking into this new unit? I thought my first day as a troop commander was a setup. I'd walked into the troop office. There was a young Lance Corporal who ended up being my patrol scout and actually also ended up being the RSM of the SAS. And he was there reading the financial review. And I thought, no, there's no way, <laughs> no way. And people are talking about their you know, housing portfolios and, you know, geostrategic issues. And I became uh, you know, quickly acquainted that that's exactly the measure of the people in the unit. You know, they're deep thinkers. They're incredibly well read. They're philosophical. They look at global issues and consider them deeply, not to mention that they're smart, fit, motivated. And uh, yeah, I was I was very lucky um, coming into one squadron. In many ways, off the back of the Black Hawk, uh, the squadron had been decimated and um, I therefore was able to watch these incredible human beings that I didn't even know had been in the Black Hawk accident. They didn't really talk about it. They're just getting on with soldiering and reconstituting capability. But um, also working for an OC who had been the OC during the Black Hawk accident, which had naturally deeply affected him. And, you know, we're very close to, to Bob, who was the OC at the time, and, and he continues to actually do some work with us on all aspects of leadership. Um, but loved it, absolutely loved it. And then, um, you know, quick step change from uh, two years as a troop commander into being the executive officer of the counter-terrorist squadron with an OC change to boot. Um, Peter Tinley, who is a state minister over the here Honourable. in Western Australia, <laughs> the Honourable Peter Tinley, okay. MLA. AM, MLA. He came to the battalion. Yes, and in fact, another individual that did selection course twice, once as a soldier, mm. and then he went to commission, so he went to RMC and then did selection course again. Um, and a, a big man, and I love Pete to death, he's classically smart lazy, um, which was brilliant for me because as a young XO, I was industrious and just did not want to sit still. And uh, I think you know Pete, Pete certainly gave me a, a lot of head. Um, you know, certainly gave me my lead. You knew, but that's not that didn't come out right. 
<laughs> Gave me my head. <laughs> I've often wondered what goes on. <laughs> um, but no, it, it was it was incredible. Uh, my whole tenure as a troop commander and as an XO, actually, in in the unit. So Sierra Leone. When did you go there? Was that when you were? A uh, yeah. So I finished. I finished uh, my time uh, Troop Commander XO at the end of 99. I then went to Sydney for Sydney Olympics as the counter-terrorist operations officer. Um, and then 2001, I went to Sierra Leone as an advisor to the government of Sierra Leone, um, working for a, a 22 SAS full colonel and started with a brigade quite close to Freetown and uh, at that in 2001, Sierra Leone had just was at the tail end of 10 years of civil war, um, but I ended up down in the Mano River area, Mano River Junction, so where Sierra Leone runs into Liberia. Um, Charles Taylor was the president of Liberia at the time. There was a lot of illicit material trafficking to and over the border. He would push cash into Sierra Leone and weapons in return for diamonds. Uh, that was the currency, and not surprisingly, the anti-government element, the Revolutionary United Front, that was their last stand, was in the diamond fields of the Kailahun Finger along the Liberian border, um, the wealthiest part of the country. And they did as much as they could to eke out any um, ceasefire arrangements, local or otherwise, so they could just continue mining diamonds for as long as they could. But awesome, yeah, unbelievable, 12 months, real boys own adventure I think I rang um, I rang the headquarters on a sat phone in the morning kind of told them what I was up to I rang them in the afternoon let them know I was still alive and what my plans were for the next day and just rinse repeat for I think ended up being there for about nine months but yeah it was it was a awesome experience you were telling me the other day flying around in the back of a mercenary piloted hind gunship yeah yeah so you most would be familiar that the employment of mercenaries was you know, definitely part of the rich tapestry of Sierra Leone. And um, Neil Ellis, who was the uh, behind 24 pilot and was a mercenary pilot, became not a mercenary but now a contractor, mm. and he was contracted to fly. <laughs> what, what's the difference to him? <laughs> Sometimes I scratch my head. I mean, yeah. he was flying the MI-24 one, one year and that was not legal and flew it the next year and it one, was entirely one legal. One mercenaries, another man's contract. private military oh, contractor. Yeah, I guess it's yeah. all, in the, all in the perception of some UN, UN rule somewhere. Uh, but, yeah, they had two... Um, two MI-24 gunships, he flew one, another South African guy, Cassie Nell, flew the other. And when they were both in the air, what an incredible sight to behold. And sound, they make a really unique sound. But yeah, we we um, used to periodically get up into the air in the MI-24s, large Fijian contractor, I think it was Fred Marifano, I think that was his name, um, quite a famous guy also. UK X-22 SAS bloke also contracting as the um, the rear gunner. They had a gun mount at the back and it was very primitive, but very effective, very effective. And the AUF were terrified of what they used to call the whoop-whoop bird because that's the sound it used to make. Quite, yeah. quite unmistakable. But yeah, beautiful, beautiful um, location. Amazing people, just had nothing and yet just the amount of optimism and humour... Um, 
and you know in an environment that was riddled not with just insecurity but health issues with Lassa fever and malaria and HIV depressingly so mm. um, it was a real privilege to to be there for that time Africa's complex place <laughs> mm. say the least mm. yeah I'd, I'd never been to Africa um, I landed I think we landed just after dark in Lungi the airport which is well outside of Freetown, and then there was this long escorted drive into the city, and oh, I was just shell shocked. You th- you think you can prepare yourself, and even my time in the unit, I I just did not have my headspace right for Africa. No neon lights, no lights at all. Um, everything just seems to be coming at you quickly. Um, yeah, it was it was quite daunting. And then, you know, I was going into ultimately a battalion of 600, you know, five or six rifle companies. There were 500 pro-government militia, so there was 1,100 soldiers, you know, both in uniform and not, um, that we looked after and planned and uh, deployed. And, yeah, it was uh, it was an awesome, awesome time. I actually asked for it to extend, and I was told in no uncertain terms, nope, you can come home. But I did come home, and whilst I was there, actually 9-11 happened, and you sort of saw the dynamic of the world rapidly change. And so you're coming back after Sierra Leone. I was given the job to raise the East Coast counter-terrorist capability, which was seen as a necessity post 9-11, and we did that out of... Horror. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sort of nearly life-imitating back art. I, I carried the Queen's colour on the delinking parade back in my days as a subaltern Hawks when the second fourth battalion delinked to become the second battalion and the fourth battalion and there I was in 2002 raising a counter-terrorist capability in the fourth battalion the Royal Australian Regiment open brackets commando close brackets selection and turned up to a squadron as a young captain it would have been then i'm i'm quite comfortable that i'll go to my grave uh never doing a job as good as sas troop command it was just and i had the benefit of of a really tinny sort of time it was a a very exciting period with a few things going on but my first so you know it's not like you just rock up on day one so it wasn't like going to townsville where you did rock up Mm, on day one you've got a platoon and you know in my case all of a sudden you're you're saving the good citizens of townsville from from floodwaters (laughs) (laughs) um of course you've done whatever it was in those days 14 months i think it's longer now uh reinforcement cycle so it's a, a kind of a warm start um in terms of knowing people and uh, your own, I guess, professional competence and familiarity. But even so, within a week, I reckon, of getting to the unit, we'd gone straight into, um, we were online for, for counterterrorism, and uh, one a couple of the um, team commanders sort of 
brought myself and the, the troop sergeant into my office, closed the door and said, hey, we've got to tell you, uh, one of the guys is on heroin. <laughs> it's like I've lived this little closeted life where I was aware that there was a drug called heroin. I'd certainly never met anyone who had, who had uh, admitted to doing it. And he's one of the boys who, you know, we were doing live fire, you know, room clearance drills in the in the kill house day after day. And, and apparently this guy was shooting up um, at lunchtime. And, and so that was a real sort of, um, I guess, sort of confronting period at the start. I'm sort of thinking, you know, is this normal? Am I going to have to sort of get on to heroin myself here? Is this what we do? Um, but obviously an anomaly and actually a, a super sad story of a of an amazing guy who had brought himself up by the, the bootstraps, broad meadows, sort of, you know, the, the better parts of um, Melbourne, um, had a, a history of sort of drug use, but got himself clean, got himself into the unit, and then had had a particularly uh, tough time during a, a, an engagement in East Timor that, that sort of brought back all these memories. And anyway, long, long story short, but the drugs came back and tragically he ended up uh, being discharged from the military and overdosing later. But that was kind of the, the, the start of it. But um, to Tim's point, just amazing group of people, really high high performance and to the point where I, I think I, I do look back in fact on all my time in the unit and um, I, I think we were quite it was such an uncompromising environment that I think we were probably quite harsh on each other and I think it was I guess a bit of a rarefied atmosphere where you know the standards were quite high but we'd mentally shifted our own bell curve so far to the right that anyone who wasn't you know absolutely killing it every single hour of the day we, we were quite dismissive of and I, I think we were we were a little hard on ourselves and one another um probably harder than needed be to to get that so it was it was it was a challenging environment and certainly a high performing environment but an amazing time um we sort of uh had the the MV Tamper incident fairly early in the piece, which was kind of super exciting to be involved in something with those national strategic consequences. Not to mention the the challenge of the mission and the unknown and the sort of ambiguity uh, that it brought with us. And then, of course, um, as Tim mentioned, this was about the time Tim was in Sierra Leone. 9/11 happens. Uh, in fact, I just got off the 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 Tampa mission. Um, when 9-11 happened and, and I guess life changed for, for everyone, but particularly people in the unit, um, we, as in the unit, deployed a squadron pretty soon after that and, and my squadron was the, the next earmark to go. And of course, during that period, to Tim's point, we needed an East Coast counterterrorism presence, so we pushed over there and had this really strange sort of period um, in Brisbane, of all places, uh, providing a footprint on the east coast for for a counterterrorism capability, we knew we were going to Afghanistan. There was a lot of uncertainty, so we were preparing for that. But it was a really um, halcyon sort of time. We we knew that we were about to go to war. We all of this dynamism, and of course we're in Brisbane in summer, <laughs> which is you know a pretty good place to be. And and so it was it was a really sort of funny period. And right towards the end of that trip, I remember 
the whole squadron going to see Black Hawk Down. So Black Hawk Down, the movie, was in the cinemas. We all got gold-class tickets um, to see this movie. And so it's this whole SAS squadron, literally weeks away from deploying to, to war, to Afghanistan, um, watching a war movie, and a, and a really good one. And I remember that the cinema, you know, there's whatever it was, 80-odd seats in the cinema. It was the whole squadron and two, like a guy with his girlfriend on a date. <laughs> and we were, you know, the, I... In fact, I, I think that was the last time I'd been to a gold-class cinema, but you could order beers and, you know, people were, were getting amongst it and we were critiquing the tactics and all this sort of stuff. And I remember Is feeling for this like, poor guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Eric Banner, his top tips as the, the Delta guy. But no, uh, very fond memories of, of Troop Command. So, Tim, were you the squadron commander? No, 2002, when Ben to, went to Afghanistan. I'm thinking about when you did the Pong Su. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ben and I, I think, met for the first time in 2002 when we went to a mutual mate of ours, Cam's wedding. Yep. If I'm not mistaken. That'd be about right. And I, I knew I was going to Three Squad and I knew that Ben was going to be one of the troop commanders until, you know, he died or I found someone better. Well, it was actually literally that because I don't think it was one of those periods where they weren't getting a lot of officers through selection. And so I'd had two years in troop command, which was, you know, mm, two years per man per day per hat sort <laughs> yeah. of thing. And that was a good run. And then they, they literally couldn't <laughs> find anyone better. So I, Stephen Bradbury, my way into a third year, which was with you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so 2003, um, yeah, we came together... We were kind of hopeful there'd be more rotations through Afghanistan, but no, at the end of 2002, that was that was it. We didn't send another squadron for, first for, push. Yeah. Yeah, for the first time around, not until 2006, I think, uh, squadrons went back again. Yeah, because 03, they sent the squadron to Iraq. That's they? right, yeah. yeah. And, and so we, we were sort of on the fringes of all of this interesting things. Um, the squadron had gone to the western desert of Iraq during the invasion, um, one squadron again we we're kind of hopeful that might rotate through we might see other squadrons sort of coming around and we were nicely positioned and lobbying and doing all those things with with our bosses in fact weren't we in Papua New Guinea at that time <laughs> oh, I can't remember but it was it was quite early in 2003 when the Pongsu um, came about and I think later in 2003 when we took the squadron up to New Guinea which actually was yeah. was interesting in itself, it was the first time in a decade that a form military unit had been permitted from memory by the Papua New Guinean government yeah. um, to to train and exercise as a subunit in um, in New Guinea. And Ben and I zipped up for a reconnaissance, and we had our own private jet, didn't we? We had a caribou, caribou. with us, um, yeah. which we flew around the country planning um, our little activity. And then, yeah, we took the took the squadron up, and it was a awesome. Well, I seem to remember a month or so. We had a we had an absolute absolute blast. We ran some uh, incredible activities there, and uh, we were yep. super supported in terms of assets. and And actually, one of the really meaningful things that we did, Hawks, at the end, I had a crazy idea that everything we were doing was out of Madang on the north side of the Owen Stanley Ranges and for those that understand Papua New Guinean topography there are no roads over the Owen Stanley you can't go from Port Moresby by road 
um, over to the northern end of New Guinea you either have to fly or you take a boat around the side and so yeah my, my crazy idea was because we're on the northern side we'll all walk back over the Kokoda track and that's what we did um, the whole squadron with the exception of a few people who um, were palletizing equipment and weapons and bits and pieces to, to send back to Australia but uh, yeah the whole squadron in sort of staggered fashion walked back over over Kokoda which was an incredible experience you know <laughs> wearing camouflage uniforms with some of our Papua New Guinean uh, Defence Force, Special Forces colleagues, um, just absolute, a real privilege, a real privilege, one, to be doing it with, with the squadron, with these guys that you're super close with, and two, just to be in that environment and, um, you know, pausing in all these memorable locations, and we had one guy who was a military history nut and, you know, <laughs> just loved it. And uh, he had, I reckon, the complete works of Kokoda mm. <laughs> carried in his backpack, so, which was crazy. But experiences may vary. Remember, <laughs> oh, Hawks, I said, yes. you know, we were a little harsh on ourselves. So we had this, this super high-performing water ops troop, and we did not stop at every little bit. <laughs> <laughs> we did it like a forced march, you know, this, this incredible sort of, I don't know, dick-measuring contest to see how fast we could do Kokoda track. I think we did, from memory, we separated... Um, troops by a day so and we draw lot drew lots in fact this is another li- little interesting part that Ben won't appreciate because he's not a rugby buff but it was rugby world cup period and so we'd we'd watch the quarterfinals and Australia had, Australia had won I'm just getting this right so Australia had won the quarters and then we all drew lots to work out who's going to walk first because the probability was that there would be some that would be still on the track during the semi-final and potentially some that might still be on the track during the final. So um, I think squadron headquarters and its attachments, (laughs) we we toddled off first. (laughs) And we listened to um, the game between Australia and New Zealand, that semi-final, in the middle of nowhere on a... um, uh, Buddy, what are they called? Little transistor. Um, what are they? Is radio? <laughs> radio. Not, that's radio. not exactly what I'm looking for. Um, with this complex antenna array to you know listen to this to this um, game and you know all of a sudden Australia win and uh, uh, there we are. I, I mean I'm not exaggerating. We were squatting on a footpad. We'd put hammocks up because there was just no place to sleep unless you're on a one foot wide footpad. Um, but yeah, there we were and, and listening to it. But so we'd staggered by by a day, and Ben's troop were a day behind us, and we got not, to not for long, <laughs> exactly. And we got to um, uh, Owa's corner, and we turned around. They were right behind us. So mm. they'd in the space of whatever it was, five and a half days, they'd caught up by a day. <laughs> but then, uh, actually, fortunately, the whole squadron made it. Um, over Kokoda in time to be invited to the High Commissioner's house. Conodobu, yeah. yeah. The and, um, and we watched the, the grand final, England and Australia, on the big screen. And we, we had a lovely, absolute gentleman of, a, of an SBS, so British mm. Special Boat Service exchange, exchange. guy. 
um, JB with us at the time and of course it had been this up-down series and, and as Tim mentioned I, I still don't particularly follow rugby but you know got into the, the banter and of course um, when Johnny Wilkinson took us apart in the, the in the final won the game yeah um, he was insufferable I think is pretty, <laughs> probably yeah, that's a good not. word very good word <laughs> I could imagine that yeah. I did get catered I did get catered as well after I got out of the fence but I did it over eight days mm-hmm. and I paid a porter to carry my gear <laughs> and we started at seven and we finished at two every day and you had the afternoon to wander around and look at stuff it was like not not to be underestimated. I'm I'm a believer that that every Australian should walk Kokoda. Full stop. Um, and there are people who, are, I mean, have no legs and are doing Kokoda, so there's no excuse. And um, whether you do it with a porter or not, um, whether you sprint over it like Ben did, or or pause and appreciate the beauties of um, of Brigade Hill and some of the other unbelievable locations on that track, you gain a full, a full and complete appreciation of how difficult our soldiers did it back in, um, back in World War II. Yeah. There's a guy living in Townsville that was in the 39th Battalion that I went and spoke to afterwards. And he, um, he did it three times. He went, he went to Kokoda, got pushed back, started to push back again, got pushed back. And then the guys from, um, Middle East came back or North Africa came back and reinforced them. Then they pushed them out again. Then he ended up getting stuck there and went through Gona and Boona and all the way up to uh, Wewak. And that's when his war ended. But um, talking to him, and I walked it once from Kokoda back. Talking to him, he'd done it what, three times under fire and no equipment, no support, nothing. He was looking at me thinking, Jesus. Well, well, I mean, when you read the accounts of the 39th Battalion and others um, and you hear the story of I've got nowhere to go except dive over the edge of this ridgeline and the person goes missing for a week, you think that's a tall story. You know, like how can you just go missing for a week? Okay, yeah, okay, you dive off the track, but you can't go missing for a week. I'm telling you, stand on those ridgelines and look down at what they leapt into, you're going missing for a week. He recounted a story where he was pushed off the track by the Japanese, him and a couple other guys, and it took them four days to find the Australians again. So that was walking around the scrub, coming back in, having a look, no Japs there, going back out and doing that until they actually found the guys again and reunited. But four days it took him. And, and this is your yeah. point earlier, Hawks, that, you know, we've got the golden hour and there's that expectation that, you know, you get shot or something happens and there's a helicopter there, there's a roll on surgical facility there and all that sort of thing. And, yeah, that kind of story and, and your dad's story, um, it's, yeah, it's it's completely different. I mean, I'm, I'm super proud of our service and what we've done. Mm-hmm and being part of, I guess, that Anzac tradition. But when you look to, back to the conditions in, you know, the Eastern Front or Gallipoli or World War Two or Korea, Malaya, mm-hmm. Borneo, Vietnam, um, it's a different <laughs> experience, I think. It takes nothing away from anyone else, though. Like everyone else is still, you know, especially the guys now, and, with, and this is a topic at the moment, as we said, with Afghanistan. It takes nothing away from what everybody's done over there, done a 
sterling job and represented our country. It's just different. It's a new, it's, it's, it's just a different shape. Yeah. Nowadays, the focus is on getting those people out. And like I said, back then, they didn't have that. They didn't have those resources. They didn't have that equipment. They didn't have the technology. So they did the best they could. But mm. now we can, mm. we can, we have the equipment and technology to provide that first line support to people to get them out casualties. And for us, you know, our generations, if we lose someone, it's, it's bad because you look at it and you think, shit, you know, they had every opportunity and we lost them. But back in those other days, people, you know, like your dad, Tim, you know, he lost these soldiers and there was nothing he could do. He couldn't make that extraction quicker. He had no impact or no influence over it. It was just, you need to get back to here. Simple as that. You know, 30 years later, there's no chance those soldiers or that soldier of his would have died. No, no way. Um, in fact, interesting, it's it's too good for Ben, so I don't think that he has this level of originality, but uh, he introduced me to the phrase of standing on the soldiers, of, uh, standing on the shoulders of those that have gone before you. That is not mine. It's not yours. Is it standing on the shoulders of giants? I've, standing I, on the shoulders of giants, point, but, but, but paraphrase, yeah. standing on the shoulders of those that have gone before you. And I quite like that, that... We're just carrying, we're stewards, we just carry this little bit of capability. We try and improve it to the best of our ability with all of our enthusiasm and energy and, okay, with changes in technology and warfare and tactics in different operating environments. But we just try and make these incremental improvements. But it's bigger than us. It's bigger than any one of us. And in being a steward, we just take that baton of excellence or of courage, or of humility, or a combination of all of those things and more, and then run with it for a little while, and then hand it over. And and I do feel, particularly when you're on places like Kokoda, this really strong link with those people who have been the giants that were standing on the shoulders of. And the, the beauty of the track, as you know, Hawks, is that it's just living history. You know, you're standing on this battlefield you're reading the events of the battlefield. You can see the trenches of the battlefield. You, die, you, you dig down six inches and you're finding relics from the battlefield. I mean, it is just so emotional. And I think in, in some of those places, like Isarapa, um, you know, being one, you, you can't help but just feel, yeah. And, and a sense of incredible pride, but but also respect, not just for our soldiers at fort, but also for their adversaries, that, you know, they were both there just doing government will. And, you know, they were looking left and right and just thinking, you know, we're, we're putting our lives on the line for each other. It was it was that primitive. Um, yeah, anyway, so the, the that experience of Kokoda was, was awesome, despite the fact we didn't win the World Cup. I actually, I actually ran into some Japanese trekkers while I was doing Kokoda. They were coming the other way. Yeah, and right. they went from south to north. Did you push yeah. them back? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to. But I, I sat down with them and two of them spoke English very well. And I was having a chat to them. They were only young. And I said to the young fellow, I said, um, what, what's the significance of this track to you? And he goes, oh, it's one of the top, top ten treks in the world. Mm. And I said, do you know what happened here? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, Australia, well, sorry, Australia and our allies fought the Japanese here. And he goes, no. And I said, yeah. But we're at that point, I can't remember where it was, but we're at that point where there's that 
monument that the bone man put out. I don't know if you read that book called the bone man. He, so a Japanese guy went back after the war and repatriated bones, took them back to Japan. But anyway, he's put a monument up there with a sphere of granite. And near that, and all the text on it is in Japanese, obviously. So I took him up there and he had a read of it. And then he came and sat down and he spoke to his friends in Japanese and then turned around and he said, we, we don't even know about this. Hmm. We weren't taught it. They know nothing about it. But it, it, it's also very funny when you look, you know, the conversation before about, um, you know, looking at adversaries and you, you tend to look through this very reductionist lens of good guys and bad guys and it's, it's I mean, it's only a couple of generations on that these people, this country we were fighting against is now a close ally and, you know, you, you look at the situation in the... Uh, I guess environments we've been in in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it's it's not as binary as I think the history books make out. It is just young people, I guess, caught up in the the sort of uh, conflict of the moment and and doing what they think is the right thing. Um, but yeah, certainly where there's not a great deal of difference in terms of the combatants in most of these these uh, conflicts that we find ourselves in. I was going to say, Hawks, and there's a lot of people that think, oh, I don't really want to read military history, but I'm kind of interested in the dynamics of what happens in the jungle. And um, Have you read Fear Drive My Feet? Yeah. And the jungle is neutral? So Fear Drive My Feet was Peter Ryan, who was a KIAP, a patrol officer. And back in the day, we administered New Guinea under Queensland law, I seem to remember. And the patrol officers were sent seconded up into different regions of New Guinea and they used to walk between village to village, community to community and keep the law, the Queensland law. Isn't that unbelievable? Um, And uh, the jungler's neutral was F. Spencer Chapman who fought in Malaya and then um, sort of dislodged, I think, and fought, you know, really an unconventional campaign in the jungle. That is not true, though. The jungle is not. <laughs> no, the jungle is for the jungle. The jungle is an <laughs> adversary. The end, at the end of the day, the jungle always wins. Yeah, having gone to Land Command Battle School, Battlewing Tully, <laughs> yes. I think all of us, and, and Hawks, probably you, far more times than Tim and I put together. Um, yeah, no, the jungle's a prick of a thing. Yeah, in I the end, in the the end Lantana always Prong. wins. I don't remember being your friend at all, Mr. Prong. <laughs> The jungle and I, we, we never actually came to an understanding. There is but one saving grace in military operations in the jungle, and that is one. It gets very dark very early, and it gets very it light asleep. very late, and no one is moving at night, no so you can get plenty of sleep. The, the other two saving graces, as the instructors at Land Command Battle School, Battlewing Tully, would always uh, remind you, is that your skin is waterproof and <laughs> you only get wet once. <laughs> yeah. My father-in-law tells me about, because he was he started that place with um, George. Worry George. And he tells me about how sometimes they used to walk back at night back to scale A and re-iron and starch their cams. Oh, sorry, it would have been greens. Greens. Wake up the next morning, it's raining. And when you've got starch greens on, the water just beads off it. He said, you, you, you know, they'd be looking at the diggers just like, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> where did that? But he, those sort of mind games I used to play with them. But I was just going to say, asking you two guys is probably a, um, 
I suppose, a valid point. As commanders, on battlefields nowadays, when you're there and you're in the thick of it, what what's going through your mind about um, casualties and soldiers and extraction and how you deal with that I, in a modern-day scenario? I think there is this um, expectation that that kind of it it's an exception i i certainly remember i mean the casualties we took you you called it in you got fire support you got air support you got medevac and you know that old cliche which i think started in the vietnam war that you you're probably better off getting shot in a battlefield in terms of being able to get back to a, a top-notch surgical facility than you are having a prang on a highway back home you know there's just the the mechanisms and the amount of uh, time and effort that's that's gone towards ensuring that there are absolutely first class and incredibly brave medical and you know extraction asset personnel that are, are going to pull you off the battlefield and it provides an amazing amount of confidence and you know that drives this sort of capability but the flip side is it's so surprising when someone dies and Mark Wales a good friend of ours um, talks about you know he was there with um, Maddie Locke one of the uh, SAS um, fatalities casualties during Afghanistan and it, it seems unbelievable you know he, he writes about this very well and talks about it very well that that someone could die you know we've got all this stuff um, and I think your point earlier, Hawks, that it has changed, and, and for the better, obviously, but it, it is funny how unexpected it can be, I think, when, when, peop- when you do have casualties, fatalities, um, despite the fact that you're, you're at war. And we interviewed um, Dan Kieran, VC, Hawks, as yeah. you know, and he tells a story about his good mate, Crash McKinney, yeah. getting shot, he thinks he's been shot in the arm. Um, he has been shot in the arm, but it's gone through the arm into his chest. And he's think he gets the report, oh, Crash has been shot in the arm. He's going, oh, good, good to go. You know, the way things are, no problems. He, he'll be up and up and going again. And then he turns around at another moment in time and he sees that they've stripped Crash's body armour off him. They're resuscitating CPR, you know, CPR exactly. And it, it's a bit kind of does not compute what's going on i got a report he's been shot in the arm and now they're doing resuscitation but we're in afghanistan we can get medical evacuation you know pronto um yeah so that's a that's an interesting story and and also you know it nearly comes back to some of the other themes that we've woven through this conversation dan put his life on the line to draw fire away from that situation and he yeah. wasn't thinking about it from i need to show incredible courage and bravery it was I need to draw fire so they can work on my mate. Mm. Yeah. It, I listened to that and it was, um, whilst it was tragic, it was exactly what you said. His focus was how do I allow the guys that have just dumped all their gear and started doing CPR on him in the open, how do I protect them mm. to work on my mate? And when you think about it, I started to pull that apart and I'm thinking, so, okay, these guys have all run up there and dumped their kit and started doing what they can to try and save this guy, regardless of what's going around them. So that's that mateship thing. Yeah. 
And he's taken it upon himself as the leader, the junior leader, to I've got to protect them, to protect my mate, to get all this sorted out. And off he goes on this crazy, we'll call it crazy. Mm. Or he calls it crazy. Series of runs to draw fire. And at the end of the day, they got his mate out of there and tragically he died. But it, um, he's, the whole story is about a whole group of people that decided that regardless of what's going on around me, I'm going to dump my gear and I've got to work on this guy. So not being there, but listening to him, you imagine a couple of guys up there doing CPR, regardless of what's happening, rounds going everywhere. He's watching that going, okay, what am I going to do? And off he goes. And at the end of the day, what he did was is lost his mate, but he probably saved a lot of other lives there as well at that time because they switched off to what's happening and were focused on their mate as well. And I think that's what people forget. And this is one of the things in relation to um, what's going on now with the regiment. People forget that the guys are not there for the political agenda. They're there for the bloke next to them. And they're there to protect the bloke next to them, fight for the guy next to them, die for the guy next to them, whatever it may be. And I think the public at the moment, not all the public, the, a minority, I'd say, are forgetting that that's what they do. It's not about medals. It's not about citations. It's about coming home with the people you're left with and going back if you have to with the same people, coming back with the paper you're left with again. And we seem to have skewed that a little bit recently um, in my view with some mm. of the comments that have come out and we seem to forget that, that not that I justify anything if and I only I say if because it's only allegations if mm. something has happened well okay fair enough but uh, we seem to have jumped on this in my view too quickly and um, we seem to be attacking the people that are probably most at risk and the people that have been through the most um, harshly but I, I definitely, that will go on, yeah, and I mean to pick up on a couple of threads that we spoke about before. I, you know, I mentioned that that our squadron went and saw Black Hawk down before we went to Afghanistan the first time, and there's a, a very memorable line in there where Eric Banner, playing the the sort of senior Delta operator, um, reflects on you know none of this is about the politics or about the the cause or any of that sort of stuff. It's about the the guy next to you. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. And, you know, I don't doubt that on the other side of that gunfight where, where Daniel Kieran um, won his VC, there were, were probably Afghan dirt farmers doing exactly the same thing, looking after their mates and, you know, doing these conspicuous acts of gallantry to, to look after the guy next to them. It, it kind of boils down to, to something as, as simple as that. But the, the other thing... We... Oh, go on. No, you go on. I was just going to say the other thing is is this is it's kind of extraordinary stuff and we you know we've spoken a lot about the advances in kind of medical technology on the battlefield that make casualties fatalities unexpected these days but societally we've moved away from this um, and blessedly so moved away from this knowledge of violence or knowledge of conflict or knowledge of of um, I guess the ugliness of of mankind, humankind's nature, and 
yet we're still sort of putting people in this role where they are, in in the Afghanistan case, confronted with it chronically over a, a period of a decade plus, and it it does impact your sort of humanity. It does put you in a place that is different to to what you are walking down St George's Terrace in Perth, and there's a lot of context there. And and you're right, Hawks. You know, if if it the the allegations are true and lines are being crossed, then clearly that's not who um, we aspire to be as a nation and and not uh, something we can tolerate but per you know and we we spoke about Dave Kilcullen he actually wrote a great article in the Australian about you know there are reasons uh, not excuses for for how this has evolved into to the situation that we find ourselves in yeah and and I guess we're waxing lyrical a little bit but a very well considered second article is Mark Wales's that he wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald earlier this week um, I think yeah, I read that one tr- trying to understand the context of Afghanistan it's nearly impossible mm. to explain in 150,000 words. Um, Ask Alexander the Great or the English or the Russians. I mean, yeah, Genghis, you know, Genghis Khan, the English yeah. twice, the First Anglo-Afghan War, the Second Anglo-Afghan War, the Russians and, you know, dare I say, the coalition and NATO since 2002. Uh, it's a very easy country to get into. It's an impossible country to get out of and it's nearly an impossible country if not an impossible country to understand. So, I mean, let, no. let's sit sitting morality to one side. No one stands beside any absence of morality. And there is a third article written by, I think it's 12 current and former um, members of the SAS. And one of the lines they say is, we are not them, they are not us. And uh, I think that, that little paraphrased part of the article beautifully summarises probably the majority of people that have served in the SAS since the company started in 1957. That you know we've we've only ever been wanting absolute excellence. That we're a absolutely recognised and known apparatus of government to deal with missions without precedence. The most challenging jobs when they're handed to the SAS, there is no one else to hand them to. And when we do those jobs, we like to fade back into relative in, uh, obscurity, you know, in, in that grey space and with an element of humility. And if you see yourself on the front page of the newspaper, you nearly laugh it off. And, you know, if, if we got to a point where any one individual thought they were bigger than that, that's a problem. And if we got to a point where our morality was compromised, that's a problem. Yeah, and... Now, I read an article the other day, too, and they, they sort of summed it up well, I think. Afghanistan was a insurgents war. It was a guerrilla war fought without the jungle. Mm. And when you think about that, so it, I think his comment was it was a guerrilla war fought in the open, mm-hmm. which is difficult. Yeah. Well, Considering, you know... Those types of wars we've fought in the jungle in the past, and now this one was blatantly in the open. Ben and I talk about this, and and there's, I mean, I'm I'm aged, um, but we can't be thinking binary about good and bad, enemy and friendly, you know. And, and that situation paragraph historically, in military orders, uh, you talk about those two things: a situation friendly, a situation enemy. Uh, well, Afghanistan, there is vagaries in that and penny packeting 
that word enemy or you overuse of the word Taliban and I think that has been terribly overused it's a convenient term but we're just dealing with a, a militant band um, if you rewind the clock 3,000 years you'll see that if they're not militant with people who have come into the country they're militant with their neighbours um, and there's a wonderful cartoon I'll, I'll have to find it again and share it but um, summarises it into pictures um, of warring communities and when they're not war they're only not warring when someone a third party is entering their their district their region um, and disturbing what is their normal Anyway, we get a bit bogged down in that area, and I didn't want to go down that part. <laughs> Purely because, out of respect for obviously you guys and the regiment itself, because um, I have never met an unprofessional um, special forces soldier in my entire career at all. But you know, in all honesty, I never have. I've I've only ever met guys that were professional, humble, as you said, quiet, went about their job. You'd, you'd go and do courses with them. They were the quiet guys down the back, had no idea about middle law, that would come and talk to you. But <laughs> they they were, yeah, as we said, quiet. Quiet achievers, humble, not there to seek um, accolades just to get on and do the job. And in most cases for them, it was get that course over and done with so they get the hell out of there. But, <laughs> oh, but um, oh, oh, by the way, if I can quickly interject... There was just this unwritten expectation that if an SAS guy went on a career course in wider army, he was going to top the course. And if he came back and didn't top the course, you'd be saying, "What were you ill, or what was going wrong?" So you know, hence was the expectation of them. <laughs> no, that's right. Anyway, so we'll move on from there. And obviously, uh, Tim, you went over and helped raise 4AR and develop them to what they are today, which is 2Commando. Um, again, they've excelled themselves with what they've achieved over the last 10 years or so. Um, ben, you ended up being the commanding officer of SASR. Do you want to just briefly touch on that, how that was for you? An another Stephen Bradbury moment. The um, I, I was there in a, a sort of dearth of officers came through, and so there were were very few actually in my cohort that were eligible, and all the good ones got out. So I I was left with the the job, but it was a fantastic job. And Tim spoke about, I guess that custodianship. That was the thing that I hadn't expected, but which I really felt proud of um, during that job as commanding officer that. You were part of a, a, a legacy, a, a history of, of a, a very proud, and I, I, I still remain very proud of the unit and what it's achieved, um, and part of the Perth community as well, which I hadn't expected. And, you know, you'd get invited to these things and you were, so, you know, you were this kind of D-list celebrity in Perth that would, would go to all these things as by virtue of your position. 
and very quickly you work out that it's it's not you it's it's the role you're in and i felt that custodianship that ambassadorial sort of um nature of the job was something i was immensely proud of um and you know that that was one of the things i really took away that that this is clearly bigger than me this is about uh, a, an organisation that is esteemed and, and, you know, it's taken some hits uh, clearly recently in the open source press, but I think it, it should still remain an esteemed organisation. It is an amazing group of men and women doing some really tough stuff. That, and, you know, it sounds trite, but the majority of which no one ever hears about. Um, and, you know, it it is... That that part of it, you know, you'd be the touchstone as the commanding officer in a lot of these public fora uh, for that, and it was super humbling. It was it was something I hadn't expected, and something I really am thankful for as a result of that job. It was not as cool as Troop Command. <laughs> that was much more fun. Yeah. But um, but it, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was it was an amazing job. Yeah. All right. So obviously, both of you had sterling careers in the regiment. Tim left earlier and went off on a path with the UN, I believe, was it, Tim? Yeah, I did uh, 12 months as one of the principal planners for the 2005 Afghan parliamentary elections, the National Assembly and Provincial Council elections, which was their first democratic um, elections to to vote in a parliament. Um, Quite controversial, first time women were being um, invited into parliament as well as some of the minority groups. Um, including coochies, their nomadic, um, nomadic groups, uh, but incredibly rewarding project, very well resourced, and uh, I think I've t- talked about this before. On election day, we opened some thirty thousand locations with a million staff in the field. So, the magnitude of the planning problem was incredible, and and the execution it would never have happened if we didn't embrace some of those core military principles, you know, this mission command, a centralised intent, decentralised execution. But um, probably a little story, I remember waking up really early on election day, I think we got up about 2am on the day of election, we were opening sites at 6am um, and driving, there's no traffic on the road as you can imagine, you know, middle of the night in Afghanistan, um, driving to the elections compound and we were all three of us in the car. It was like Christmas morning. It was unbelievable, the feeling. We were so excited that finally all of the planning, all of the hard work had come to this one day. Sure, there were things happening beyond that with distribution of votes to counting centres and so on and so forth, but it was it was unbelievable. And we, we got into uh, what was called the Joint Electoral Operations Centre. It was a massive warehouse I was the director of the Joint Electoral Operations Centre, which was a fusion centre for NATO, Coalition, Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police. Um, We had some covert elements, um, technical electoral experts, security, uh, electoral security experts, logistics and so on and so forth. Just one big hangar with everyone in it. Um, And about 5am we got our first contact report I can't remember the province, but it was somewhere down down south that um, extremists, Islamists were were attacking a, a polling site, um, and we thought, geez, if this is the start of the day, we haven't even opened that site and it's being attacked. 
this is going to be a, an absolute crackerjack of a day. And we kind of managed our way through that. And, you know, with all of those assets being brought to bear um, who were fantastic, you know, where there were coalition, NATO, Afghan National Army and, and beyond, including logistics efforts, um, it was super exciting. But actually, as it transpired, we got through that whole day with relatively few incidents. Um, no one was killed or even injured as a result of insurgent forces on that election day which is incredible when you think about how many, not just how many staff we had in the field, but I think a voting population of 14 million, if my recollection's correct. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a wonderful day, really wonderful. You would have thought that if anything was going to go wrong, it would have been that day, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah well, exactly. That was the highest profile day on the calendar for the world in that year, yeah. And then um, I, that's when I found you again on Facebook, sitting there on the big leather chair at the top of your empire with the new business you, you started. So just briefly, what, what was behind that and how did that go? Yeah, so I, I um, after my time in the UN, which I loved, I just realised that if it's not a focused project, um, I, I wanted a new challenge. And um, I'd had uh, a friend of mine who I'd met in Sierra Leone. He was a, um, a Highlander, a UK... Um, Highland Regiment guy who'd got out and started a company and he said look do you want to come across to Dubai and be my director of operations and after some deliberation and conversation I decided yep that's a that's a great idea so I actually went to Dubai for the better part of nine odd years um, running two groups of companies over there um, mostly working post-conflict and austere environments across a range of different practice areas and um, I started Director of Operations. I spent uh, five odd years in my first company and then changed into a larger company about triple the size um, with 1,400 staff in 14 countries, including um, a significant change piece at the start. Uh, it wasn't the most crisply managed company nor the most focused and the management team were um, they needed some realignment, so the change piece involved, involved dislocating, making redundant all of that management team and, and restarting again. But incredibly rewarding. Um, as a change agent, it was punishing. Um, you know, think of the time you imagine change might take and triple it, um, and then you know, you're, you're just in the centre of a range of different pressures and stressors. But I really enjoyed my time in Dubai full stop. As an Australian, you know, Dubai is in the absolute centre of the world and, you know, I had the great privilege of going to oh, innumerous countries. I, I was travelling three weeks out of four, travelling more than an Emirates pilot. is allowed to travel, allowed to fly, more time in the air. I've got a DVT to prove that. Um, but, oh, yeah, it was, it was an incredible experience. And then sort of fast forwarding to the middle of 2014, I came home actually feeling incredibly homesick. Uh, didn't fully appreciate that, I think, until I came home and unpacked my bags and being back with family, yeah, that, that um, sort of nearly vindicated the decision. Um, and I was terribly burnt out. I mean, we, we ran a business that was absolute high octane, working 
you know, in super high pressure environments. We had some 550 people in Iraq alone across the whole country and then teams in Afghanistan and Sudan, South Sudan, working through Somalia, um, Kenya and beyond. And um, yeah, it was seven days a week. And when the Sydney office closed, we had Ottawa and DC opening at the same time. So it was truly 24 hours a day. And yeah, when I when I came home, I just wanted to decompress. So I took a little bit of time for myself and did some freelance consulting. And uh, maybe we'll come back to the next part of the jigsaw puzzle in a little while. Well, I know. So you come back to Australia, and I think it's about that time when Ben gets out of SAS and rings me when I'm in Tasmania. Now you two working together as consultants, I believe, working yeah. with so industry. I- I finished up as commanding officer and I I think I'd I mean I'd I'd wanted to do an MBA in some form or other as I guess a professional expansion and and was was pretty it, I mean I think any commanding officer job is is pretty busy and I was ready to sort of take a breather and so I decided to do that full time and, and had not made a decision to get out of the military at that stage. But sort of halfway through that year, I decided that it was time to move on. And about that same time, caught back up with Tim and uh, we, it, w- it was actually quite a serendipitous sort of uh, meet up and, and series of discussions that led to, to us deciding to, to start this thing together. And... I mean, Tim's just ducked out of the room, so it's a good time because I'd never tell this to his face. But I am so thankful um, that I was able to to go out of the military into business with him. It was such a familiar environment, um, one based on, I guess, absolute trust. And, you know, one day he may run off with, you know, all of it, <laughs> clear the bank account and, and clear out. But... We, we had this funny sort of uh, discussion at the start where we sort of danced around each other about how we'd split up the company and how we'd work out, you know, who gets what and, and you know, who brings in a client or who does the work. And it got far too complex for, for either of us to, to work out. So we just said, look, stuff it. We'll, we'll draw a line down the middle, 50-50, and we'll both work hard at this. And, mm. um, and that kind of... Uh, I guess ethos is is what we've taken in and and remains to this day. And I I do remember at the start, because I I came out with no clue on the commercial side. So, you know, I I would like to think I had something to offer on the consulting side, but but absolutely nothing on the... (laughs) Even that's debatable. (laughs) (laughs) Tim's now back. Um, But... You know, we, we had these sort of periods where, you know, 11 o'clock at night, we were both working out of our, our sort of respective home offices and we're both still online and, you know, it was it was a, a very... We felt like we were in the trenches, but um, it was a, a very kind of positive time and I'm, I'm very thankful to have had Tim there, not only for, you know, having someone to, to sort of lean on and to sympathise with, but also the massive deficits in my knowledge I had that phone a friend, you know, Tim had all that commercial experience that he's just spoken about. So I could ask him, you know, what is invoice and, you know, how do you write a proposal and what what all these things look like. And I think, you know, as we're setting this up, uh, 
we we were both working hard. I think you know if we we'd drawn it down just purely on who was bringing in the money. I mean that was Tim was doing a lot more of the delivery and the the client facing stuff because he had that experience. But we were both up there at sort of eleven o'clock at night, but he texting each other on stuff uh, as we built this thing. And and that's something I'm I'm sort of super proud of. And that kind of as I said before, that that trust-based relationship is is something that I cherish in terms of what we've built to to this point. Right. Ask me again in six months when he clears out the bank accounts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you've been saying, you said the same thing twelve months ago, and the bank accounts are still as bad as they've ever been. <laughs> I think you're waiting to make, to lay look good before you clear it out. Once it goes up, you'll grab hold. Yeah, exactly. It, it um, and look. This is what I was chatting about before, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the because um, I've been writing them down. The things that I believe, are, I suppose, circumstances for you two. So you both were sons of soldiers, mm-hmm. officers. You both went through ad for an RMC. You both ended up in infantry corps, which is out of ad for is not a yeah, sorry out of RMC is not a big thing. Mm-hmm. You both ended up in the battalion, same battalion. You both ended up in recon platoon. Well, and company. same company, Charlie Company to recon, yep. yep. You both ended up in SASR. You both ended up on a couple of missions together. Then you went your separate ways and then you came back together again and you started a business and you built that business on trust and relationship from the past. So I refute your comments that you blokes don't, have this little i don't know what it is a click but it seems to work between the pair of you it it definitely does you you followed along and now you sort of created a business where you're both in there so you've probably followed each other's careers but now you've got to the end and you have created something together i i think think i mean on paper i think we look super similar and tim mentioned this before but i think there are some beautiful and I'll use that word again symbiotic differences between us Um, there's stuff that Tim does that I know are weaknesses of mine but he sort of complements that and and is able in a business sense to to sort of take point on on a number of different areas Um, and I'd like to think I'm looking at him now. I'm this like to think. I jump in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's <laughs> things that Ben does. I can't think of many, if any, that I wish I could do. <laughs> no, no. But, but is that not that trusting? Because if you didn't have that trust, then how could you run a business? So when we were doing that whole, it, it was a little bit of a dance, I reckon, as we, we sort of worked out how we're going to split things up and, you know, who brings in what. And if I bring in a client but you deliver, how do we split the money? And, um, but part of that thing, we both quickly realised that we didn't want... I, I think Tim said, I, I never want to uh, put in a leave app and I, I never want to wear a name tag. You know, we, we wanted an environment where I guess we weren't keeping score and it, it's hard because we've been doing a lot of um, sort of work on uh, this whole concept of resilience and, um, in fact, a lot of writing and, and development about uh, our thoughts and our model on this. But I think both of us wanted 
this to be more than just um, a, a way to make money. We recognise that this is a big part of our lives and we wanted it to be something that we would enjoy doing. And uh, I, I, I mean, to date, I think we've achieved that. And I think a big part of that is that we're not keeping score, that we're both, and, and in fact the entire team now within our organisation, are putting in, uh, but trying to, sort of stop and smell the roses along the way recognizing that you know there's no pockets in a shroud you you can make all this money but we've seen enough very rich very unhappy people to recognize that that's that's not uh the the sort of sum total of what it's all about yeah i agree 100 percent. it's um happiness is not wealth happiness is um achieving achieving your goals i suppose it's probably one of the key things. If you can make an impression on people, you can achieve your goals, you're happy. It's probably a big one. Um, that's I, that's wealth. I keep quoting the sign of a Lululemon bag that it's it's living in the moment. It's, it's right now. And if you're able on a Friday afternoon to to schedule a, a podcast chat with, with someone that we love and admire like you, Hawks... Um, you know, to me, that's that's kind of winning at life. Mm, that's riches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a. I mean, been reading the old some of the old books, and uh, there's a beautiful Napoleon Hill book. That he talks about riches, but they're not riches defined by money in the bank account. They're riches in terms of your experience, your friendships, the people you love and admire, and the things that you do with them. And um, actually, one of the beautiful things that. We stumbled across, I think, I don't know if this was a premeditated comment by you, but Ben and I, very early in, in the business, we delivered a piece of work. It had gone reasonably well. We'd you know, walked out and gone into a neighbouring bar and we'd you know, sort of grabbed a pint and we'd sat down and there was a bit of silence and we're just sort of thinking about the day and Ben said, how good is this? How could our lives get any better? And that's now nearly become, you know, sort of page one of the prospectus. Um, whenever we're doing anything, we measure it against that yardstick. Will this make our lives better? And better does not mean more money, more staff, more work, more companies, more countries. But better is nearly, it's nearly an undefinable term, but one that you feel in your heart and your soul. Um, and I, I love that. I, I think you know for us and you know we're looking at doing something in the business at the moment and ben asked the question will it make our lives better and it it's this beautiful point of calibration well it might make us wealthier it might make us have a bigger team a bigger office you know more travel and other things but do we want to do it i'd I'd be terrified of a future where you look back and think remember that time when we could have that Friday afternoon chatting with Hawks and you know that because when we're in such a blessed position that we're not starving you know we live in this gorgeous bubble of the world in Western Australia and you know our families are happy and all that sort of stuff anything from a material perspective above this would be incremental it'd be shades of grey you know I I can walk 700 metres and and hit the beach you know, maybe I could sort of live on the beachfront. 220 metres. <laughs> it seems a lot closer. But you know what I mean? Like, you know, if I'm going to sacrifice 
the ability to do stuff like this or to pursue ventures we're interested in or to write a book or to hang out with my brother or whatever it is, um, I, I don't know that that makes our life happier. And I think we're in a really lucky position to be able to make decisions based on that. And and maybe just a little hook, um, Hawks to talk about, and we need to recognise our team because our team are the glue that holds us together. I mean, <laughs> Ben and I can be super wayward souls and we're anchored by really? this brilliant... <laughs> <laughs> is that news to you? This, this brilliant, you know, this, yeah. this, this bundle of energy. Um, and you won't be surprised to, to know that, you know, we, we do rank... I think we, we tend to run this very classless, egalitarian firm that, you know, you, you, want, you want to not be here, don't be here. You know, you want to go and work from somewhere else, go work from somewhere else. If you've got a great idea, let's hear it. If you think my ideas suck, let me know. And, you know, our, our team is incredible in terms of just seeing something, running, you know, a, a baseline appreciation, realising that that's more important than that, that other thing and then dealing with it. Um, and and I, I kind of love that. I, I think, you know, coming into the office is inspiring for me and um, like a, a guy that um, I really love and, uh, and and also inspires me Greg Wallace he, he said something to me other to me the other day he said wouldn't it be great if people didn't need to go to work and I reflected on that and I thought that's a really interesting question I don't feel like I need to come to the office I, I, but I want, I want to, to come to the office um, which was kind of his point and and Greg uh, runs a charity now and you know he talks about taking great fulfillment out of the charity and he doesn't need to go to the office he wants to go to the office mm. so look, wrapping up because i've kept you for over an hour longer than I thought, <laughs> but, um, that's only because we triple episode shut shut us up yeah, yeah. but I, I like it it's good i like it i like long podcasts but for me i think the business you guys run now, uh, and a good example of it, and I contacted you earlier in the year with COVID, I sat in some high-level executive meetings in the company that I work for. I don't sit in that realm normally, but I was filling a position for somebody that had left. And I sat there and I watched some very senior managers look like, so it was on a similar thing to this, a Zoom sort of thing, um, look like kangaroos in the headlights no idea what was going on and that's when i reached out to you guys and you pushed me onto that podcast that ben spoke about um COVID and how business needs to adapt and be able to make quick decisions and move and i pushed that on to higher levels and i had phone calls from them you know where, where'd you get that and i told them and they're going was that free? That was their first comment. Was that free? And I said, yeah, well, I didn't fucking pay for it. <laughs> but uh, you put a, put a donation in the donation tin, thanks, though, mate. <laughs> but I had some guys in some very high positions. So my our company I'm in now, I won't say the name, but they've been taken over by a bigger company. So people in that sort of space uh, walked away from that with a completely different perspective and sat in the next meeting and they were focused on the now, what we need to do, how do we manage what's in front of us? How do we make decisions? How do we move forward? And 
gone from that kangaroo in the headlights to leaders, I'll call them, instead of managers, uh, purely by listening to a couple of comments or ideas from you guys. So I think kudos to you. What you're doing is um, is good. And for business, I think understanding that and how they can move from that point. And it's, it's my view that there is a vast difference between a manager and a leader. But if they can move between that space and, and be that executive manager and a leader, then I think if they understand that, then things will seem to work better. And we've come through the other side in a far better position than I think we would have if we hadn't have um, tapped into what you guys were talking about. So I do think it really opened some eyes to these guys and they realised that, yeah, okay, it's a, it's a big thing, but managing in a crisis situation or a, a fluid situation doesn't need necessarily a manager, but a leader. And I think that's what these guys got from that. So um, it was good. I listened to it myself uh, going to work one day and that's what was the trigger. I thought, shit, these guys need to hear that. So what you're doing is um, very positive. And I, I think it's, um, it's something that the workforce needs and especially the way things are now um, and moving into the future, we're going to see this more often. So I think um, learning these sort of skills and understanding that um, focus and how you, how you manage this sort of thing is great. Well, so, uh, I mean, that, that. that's awesome to hear, Hawks, and thank you for that feedback. And I guess to both our earlier points, we learned it from you. So, <laughs> so thank you for that. I didn't teach you that shit. <laughs> so, guys, I don't want to keep you much longer, so I always have a couple of questions at the end. So um, the first one is, both of you, if you could give advice to the younger generation now, so let's talk about teenagers, give them some advice that will set them up for a, a good future, what might that be? For me, it'd be two things. One is that growth mindset that the, the same... We started this conversation talking about our fathers and that, that lesson that my dad instilled in me that if someone can do it, you can do it. And if you can't do it now, it's just I can't do it yet. So that that perspective that, that any failure is an opportunity to learn. Um, and the second would be be kind on yourself. I think we're so self-critical in general as humans um but yeah just be gentle with yourself as as you go through all this don't be so harsh and don't listen to the the negative voice in your head and uh my simple one that nearly comes back to to riches is do something that's bigger than you um and i'm talking for people that are more needy than you where you get nothing in return not even an instagram photo that grounds you it keeps you in reality and mostly we're talking therefore about charitable work but not exclusively work for charities or volunteering but but do that and do something in that field in an area that you're passionate about and and probably my second one nearly compliments ben just bear witness to your own behaviors we don't do that very often we don't hold ourselves at arm's length and think about how we've reacted like we have reacted in the way that we've reacted or why um so in terms of you know ben's comment about being kind 
definitely do that. I think that's necessary. But also just hold yourself at arm's length at um, different periods and particularly where you might have been mean or angry or targeted something or demonstrated an emotion and just think about why that was Um, and, and in drawing your attention to that hopefully it makes you a better human being and wouldn't that be great if we're all just slightly better human beings you'd be nirvana <laughs> <laughs> and the second question i ask everyone guys is so looking back on your stellar careers for the pair of you if you could do a do-over is there anything you'd change the, that is an awesome question and the, the simple answer is no only in so far as uh, and this sounds Pollyanna, but I'm life's pretty good for me at the moment, Hawks. And there's a ton of shit that I've messed up, um, and there's definitely things that um, were, were suboptimal in the way I've done it, or, or uh, you know, my actions. But they have contributed to the stuff I've learnt and you know, my ability to, to reflect on myself as an imperfect human that, that's still sort of learning and growing. So without sounding too trite, no, I wouldn't change any of that stuff, which isn't to say that I've, I've done it all perfectly. Good answer. Tim? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. And if, if I was to be really reductionist, I'd say, gee, I wish I hadn't have been more driven at times, more you know career motivated more it's your only fault that you're too <laughs> you're too perfectionist no driven <laughs> not perfectionist but you know nearly um wanting something to the detriment of anything and if the army's great at one thing it's fantastic at dangling that carrot that really wants you to drive hard for it and and maybe if i were to think back through, certainly through my uniform time and through my time in, in some of the change management for the corporate companies, I realised that it was ambition that was fueling what I was doing more than anything else and nearly to the hell with everything else. And so if I was being reductionist about it, that, that would be the one thing. But, but probably if I was also caring about myself, I recognise that life is always in fine balance and the one beautiful thing about life is that it doesn't end until you are in that shroud on the slab and so therefore you can change those behaviours and I think, you know, for Ben and myself, I'm speaking on behalf of Ben, but we have been a fascinating journey over the last two years in exploring why we do things and sort of analysing um, all of those things that you never really think about in the military um, including this wonderful thing about exploring your own mind, the deepest recesses of it, your own consciousness. Um, and we're loving that, and, and I'm loving the results that certainly I'm getting from it. And, you know, I see changes in Ben, and, um, you know, we both have meditation practices and we're doing things in different ways. And that's one thing that I would say was sorely missing from our life in uniform, uh. this, this inability to inwardly reflect. Yep. Would yeah, you agree? I that, I'd agree. I think that's I think that's across the board. But but the one thing that that's interesting about mindset is that we promote this positive mindset. We love people to be determined and be fixated and have a goal and go for it, which is the outward journey. But 
we don't really promote in the army switching our mind off and coming back to the one thing or the none thing um, and exploring you know the great flush out of your brain all the nonsense that needs to be rinsed out and um, and you know the academics and scientists will now say that's that's crucial and, and now I'll say something <laughs> blokes probably never thought you'd hear come out of my mouth but I've watched um, the last couple of years and listen to your podcast in particular I really enjoy it and I've seen that change Tim. Hmm. I saw you two at the start and the podcast was yeah, bang 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 down the line off finished gone and then I saw it move into that space where you you went and met the guy with the surfboards, which you're doing now, Tim, and he's talking about everything's not that important. You, know? you need to be able to focus on other things and treasure little things. And you went down that path of speaking to everybody that's climbed mountains and done all these fantastic things. You spoke to the guy that is into meditation and mind and well, you know, feeling well and all that sort of thing. And I've seen you both go down that path. And the way you speak with, you use the term beautiful a lot. And Tim, you talk about your meditation regime now and how that works with you and your, and your work and makes you feel better. So I've seen an you know, you've evolved over those two years that I've seen and would listen to purely by the people you've spoken to. And that's one of the things I think in the military we lacked because we spoke to people in the military. Mm. But and they were all focused on a task, mission, whatever it may be. But when you do go out and start to talk to people that have different views and understandings and ideas and you listen to them, we learn from it. And I think if we can't learn from everybody, then we're in a pretty poor place. So um, kudos to you both. Um, and your service thanks for your service to our country um and keep doing what you're doing because the podcast i've got a lot of friends that listen to it and it, it's changing other people's lives as well they're looking at things in a different way they're venturing off down this path of meditation and they're looking at different ideas and how do we change how do i manage my children better how do i how do i grow good adults that type of thing so i really think you've made an impact on not only with your business, but as well with that podcast as well. So, well done, men. Well, thank you. I'll and call you men now instead of <laughs> boys <laughs> and officers. <laughs> and, you know, we, we've loved that journey ourselves because a, a lot of it is just us trying to work stuff out. And and kudos to our guests. Well, and this that's the, the mm. crux of it, isn't it? You know, we, we've had such great people on. As you have too, Hawks, obviously. You know. <laughs> In, inclusive of I us. No, no, exclusive of us. <laughs> exclusive of us. No, mate, it's but been awesome chatting. Enjoying. Yeah. But anyway, thank you very much, guys. I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules. And and we did we did hope to do this in person and it'd be awesome to do a follow up in person with your Hawks and have we done any backups or we've done a, done one, but no, we'll I'll make really it happen, mate. Be great to do that. It'll be good. One of them's growing Not fast enough One of them's flowing Not 
far enough One of them's crying For what has made it sad One of them's dying From what it never What it never ever ever had Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence on Unforgiving 60 and we want your insights and feedback. And indeed, if you know someone who has great insights to share with us that have a practical difference, then get in touch with us at 
debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's unforgiving60.com. We love speaking to anyone who's been walking on the path less travelled and is generally living the life less ordinary. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search at Unforgiving60. That's Unforgiving60. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. You know what to do. See you next episode on the Unforgiving 60. All you businessmen, politicians, get